1: Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by Tommy Banks. Tommy is the head chef and owner of the Michelin-starred Black Swan pub in Oldstead and the restaurant Roots in York, along with his brother James, he's recently launched Banks Brothers a range of canned wine. Tommy,
2: welcome to Table Talk.
0: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
2: Tommy, as listeners know, we always start with the same question, which is what are your earliest memories of
0: food? Quite humble ones. I grew up on a farm. So we we're sort of a farm and family, really small farm. And I guess my food memories would be quite different to a lot of people. We had like our own hens. so We'd always go out collecting eggs every day. That was a children's job or uh, we'd milk a cow on a morning. So uh, I definitely have a memory of drinking sort of warm milk straight from the cow, which is quite sort of sweet and, and things like that. But I, I think the overwhelming memory being my grandparents live next door on the farm and they would cook Sunday dinners. So it'd be like a slow cooked lamb and then we'd have a vegetable plot. So they would grow little Maris Bard potatoes and they had an apple mint plant and they always used to, it was back, it was obviously 90s. So it was when everyone cooked everything in a pressure cooker. So the potatoes would go in the pressure cooker with all the mint. And I just remember potatoes, mint and lamb been like this Sunday staple, which which I to be honest, I still cook a lot of dishes, which are potato, mint and lamb because it's a great combination.
1: It sounds like food was an important part of family life for you growing up.
0: Yeah, very much so, but very very different to sort of the food that is part of my life today, though. Like we did we wouldn't have known what a Mission Starter restaurant was, certainly not. No idea. Like my family were all was very proud of anything that we would grown ourselves. You know, like uh, if it was the peas or potatoes or the the milk or the eggs, it was like, oh, this is proper food. You know, it was all sort of very, oh, as farmers are, very proud of the ingredients. But that was about as far as uh, the culinary side went, really. My mum was a decent cook. It was all um, Delia Smith recipes, so we always had a Delia Smith recipe, which is which is really tasty. And then when I got a little bit older, I think I was about eight at the time, mum and dad started at bed and breakfast out of the farmhouse. So we'd always have guests. So then that's sort of the first foray into hospitality. So every morning, getting ready for school, they would be in the breakfast service. Which was uh, six people who'd pre-ordered their dinners, but it was almost more like Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. They were, you know, fly. You'd think they were cooking for about forty-five people every morning. So uh, that was quite interesting. But uh, you know, they cooked a nice breakfast. But those sort of early food memories—we had a lot of, we had a lot of cooked breakfasts for tea, actually, because that's what we had in stock for the Ben Breakfast people.
2: And what about school food? Do you have happy memories?
0: Uh, I mean, I went not not necessarily. I, I ate, when I was a child, I ate a lot. I was very active, I played lots of sport, I was always running around, I always remember just being famished. So um, I guess, I don't think the food at my school was a disaster, like you sometimes you hear, but it certainly wasn't particularly great, but I was just grateful because I was always hungry. I remember a pizza that they used to make, these really doughy pizzas that you could get, and you could get them at break time, and they were so greasy that you'd be walking out to the pavement and all the fat would run down your arm onto your school shirt. I remember that quite, because I used to get told off for that. That was my overwhelming memory, the greasy pizzas.
1: And do you think as a child you were a good eater? Or were you fussy?
0: No, I was a fussy eater. Yeah, I really was. Yeah, I must have been, must have been a right pain, actually. Um, yeah, quite, quite a fussy eater, although we didn't really have particularly adventurous food at home anyway. But yeah, you'd never have thought I'd have gone into, a, a, into the world of food at all. Uh, I had no interest in it whatsoever, really growing up.
2: And so what was the point when you thought you might want to go into the world of food?
0: Well, I left school, I uh, did one year of A levels and left. And my mum and dad had bought the local pub in the village, which was quite run down, and decided for some reason they thought they were absolutely qualified to save it and turn it into this amazing place, um, which was, was a strange decision at the time. And they kind of left me and my brother in charge. I was sort of 17, and James was 90. And I had no interest. I hated it because hospitality is really hard work. I'd left school and suddenly was having to wash pots and wait on tables. And it was really hard work and not that much fun other than the lockings and parties we have. But, but the actual work wasn't, wasn't great. And I just wanted to be a professional cricketer. I was love in love with cricket. I lived and breathed it and uh, wanted to be a, a, a sports person. But when I was uh, just turning 18, I was, I was supposed to be going to Australia that winter to play cricket for a club cricket over there and uh, I got struck down with a disease called ulcerative colitis which sort of hit me quite badly and put to bed any sort of aspirations of a career as a sportsman and then it was when I was suffering with that that i just started to i was really desperate to as a young person i didn't have any sort of qualifications from school or any sort of real prospects i was just determined to make something of myself and uh, t- I think on tv at the time chefs were such a really prominent gordon Ramsay was really big at the time and and it was sort of the cool thing was was tv cooking so i started watching a lot of that and then obviously there was an easy outlet because you could get into the kitchen at uh, the black swan and, and cook and it sort of one thing led from another from there. And I think my sort of obsessive nature went from cricket, which I still am very passionate about, but into food. Uh, and that was the, the sort of changing moment. So by the time I was sort of 20, 21, I was just obsessed and wanted to be, wanted to be the best chef, <laughs> sort of thing, instead be of the best cricketer.
1: Do you remember any of the early dishes you cooked? And were they successful?
0: Oh, I... I think there would have been some interesting ones. I think it might be a nice way of putting it. I always sort of wonder what it must have been like in the other days when guests came to eat uh, my food and whether any of it was was any good, really. But I think the experience would have been quite novel. I used to do some some sort of very strange things. I remember when I discovered dry ice, and I used a lot of that because that seemed like a good thing to do. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I saw inspiration from because I hadn't really left home. really. I didn't really have these sort of worldly culinary experiences that a lot of chefs have that that really sort of uh, inspire the food. So I I had, I remember doing a dish, which was, I guess it was tasty, but it was a bit weird, which was um, inspired by drinking and smoking in the woods as a teenager. And I used to do this like smoked venison with everything I could get from the forage from the woods and things like that, which in hindsight were a little bit immature, but I guess they were tasty enough. But yeah, it was a little bit experimental, definitely in the early days.
2: And tell us about the Black Swan. How I mean, tell us about the moment when you got your first Michelin star in 2012. And also, tell us about how you kind of turned this pub that was clearly something your parents just took over into this, you know, very well revered restaurant.
0: Yeah, I'm still figuring it out. Really, it was. It's a strange one. We um, so we took over in 2006, and by sort of 2007, I was interested in food. But then, of course, in 2008, the recession hit, and uh, that was terrible for for pubs and and restaurants as well, but up and down the country. And we had a a modest little business, but then overnight it suddenly became like people were just penny pinching, weren't they? People didn't go out and eat out on a Wednesday night or something anymore because, um, you know, times weren't great. And um, I was actually reading Marco Pierre White's autobiography of all things. And he was talking about in the late 80s when there was the recession and he was opening Harvey's. And the piece of advice he was given was in a recession, put your prices up, not down. And we'd instantly gone for these sort of two-for-one state night sort of things that you do in a pub. But we're in the middle of nowhere. No one's traveling to the middle of nowhere for a bargain, are they? So I kind of came up with the idea that we should try and make it as good as we could, because if we were going to survive, people would have to need a reason to travel out to us. So that was sort of the mantra. How we were going to go about doing it? We didn't really know. So for between, I'd say, 2008 and 2012, 2013, we just were very, very quiet. There was nights we used to open for nobody and close again. You know, we'd have zero booked. And uh, I guess that was a lot of time. We learnt a lot, and uh, it took a long, long time. I think sometimes when you you go on like a television show or something and, and uh, or you get mission stars people think you're an overnight success but we had many many nights where nobody really came in and I think it was just over those years we started to find our uh, style and, and and what we wanted to do and eventually little bits of recognition came our way and then we've kind of evolved through to where we are today
2: and, and what how would you define the black swan style of food
0: well so we're sort of based on the the family farm. Actually, backs onto the to the restaurant, and we've got a little couple of acres of kitchen garden at the back where we grow all the herbs and fruit. And then down on the farm, we grow all the sort of field crops of uh, vegetables. And it's very much inspired by that. But over the years, I've become very obsessed by preserving because, especially up in North Yorkshire, the climate isn't always great for growing and uh, there isn't that many months of the year when you actually have amazing fresh produce so I've become obsessed by preserving ingredients whether that's by a fermentation or pickling or freezing and I have these great lockers of preserved ingredients which forms the sort of palette of ingredients that we cook with and the sort of whole DNA of the food so I think like when we make a sauce that we wouldn't use say soy sauce in it or um, like a certain Thing I'm trying to think of like red wine vinegar or something like that. Normal things you'd find in cooking, it would be a little bit of fermented gooseberry juice, or it might be a bit of fermented mushroom juice or a bit of pickling liquor off this, or some whey that we've used from yogurt, making from milk or something like that. So it becomes, the, the food I think is, is, I like to think is totally unique, but I know this is what all chefs say, but it's very flavor led. It's all about big, flavorful things. I, I, think, I think the food's quite refined, but it's more about it being really delicious than anything i i hate nothing more than pretty little things that taste of nothing
1: you were very young when the black swan received its michelin star you were I, th- I think you're still the youngest uk chef to have received a michelin star did it did it go to your head
0: um i think what maybe the opposite actually sort of imposter syndrome uh yeah. i suffered with terribly i mean i think it was all very fast i mean at age 20 I, I didn't know what a Michelin star was I've never been to a mission star restaurant and then it kind of came on my radar and then uh, it was great, but it probably came a little bit too early if, if, if I'm honest. I did really deserve it. I, I'm not sure, but, but I found it's more this sort of imposter syndrome because I looked up to people like mission stars, like hugely as, as like 21 year old, you look at these people as your heroes and suddenly it gets chucked on you and you're like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Like I, I'm not, I'm not that person. And uh, I, I found it very difficult as well because I find, I mean, I, Never done press before or anything like that, and suddenly, if you're the youngest person to receive a mission star, lots of journalists want to talk to you. And suddenly, you're sat there and they're asking you these questions about why you're a genius and things like that. And you're like, "Oh, I'm, I'm really, literally not." And you feel, I, I felt totally opposite. I didn't. I felt very insecure. But I think if we're honest, most people in their early twenties feel very insecure. So I think I think it was just the extension of that. And and I think it took me a good sort of few years, really, until so maybe when I was in the last few years maybe when I got to 30 where I sort of started to feel a bit more comfortable in my own skin in that in that sort of respect
2: and what did it mean for the restaurant having a Michelin star did it mean you had was there quite a lot of pressure suddenly to kind of keep up the
0: standards yeah I think so I mean I think that I think we already had that I'd already had that pressure anyway because um you know we're a family business and we don't have big backers or anything like that in, in a restaurant we don't have any backers so it was always kind of had to be successful that because that's our livelihood so I think I always felt that pressure but potentially people will offer their opinion a little bit more um, (laughs) when you get a Michelin star so therefore uh, that brings a whole different thing to deal with and I, I think I felt maybe not the not the pressure to make sure everything was brilliant all the time, and because that was always there and something that thrived upon. But more how to deal with other people's expectations as well as your own, I think, uh, definitely became a new factor and something we had to sort of learn very fast. But I think um, it was more in twenty, I say twenty seventeen, I think it was. We 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 got this crazy accolade of being. The best restaurant in the world according to TripAdvisor, which was this uh which is a silly sort of throwaway sort of line i didn't think it would be a big deal it ended up being a huge deal and that was something that was really difficult because then we were trying to it was a ridiculous thing because you can't really say what the best restaurant in the world is because to one person it might be a local fish and chip shop and to another person it might be a three mission style restaurant in leon you know like it's it's very subjective isn't it and obviously we're not the best restaurant in the world and we never have been or will be. However, if you have those headlines printed about you, that brought a whole different level to even the Michelin star, to be honest. I I remember one particular guy's really portly American man who'd flown over on his private jet and he requested to speak to me and I was busy in between two services, went out to speak to him and he was just like, yeah, um, I think the black one's quite good. I was like, all right, cool. He said, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say it was worth me flying over for this meal. And I was like, yeah, fair enough. You know, <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't have flown to America just to eat here either. But you know, like you done it, it's like I don't know what you want me to say. Like he's like he was like, well, I've been to Noma, and I think that's better. I was like, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, okay, cool. And that, and that was the kind of thing you were kind of like, oh, people came with such unrealistic expectations. Like, like if you almost if you said the best restaurant in the world, the experience could almost be out of this world almost is what people are expecting. And you can't, you can't fulfill those sort of expectations at all, especially in a tiny pub in the middle of nowhere. But uh, we, we definitely tried. Your whole restaurant
1: career has obviously been in the north of England. We've seen, particularly with the latest Michelin results that have come out, the, a, a huge increase in representation of those northern restaurants and a sort of recognition of the northern culinary scene. You were sort of there from the beginning with that. It must be something you feel really proud of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually you see more and more places, if we're talking specifically about Michelin, get recognised in rural areas as well. It seems actually sometimes in the cities outside of London, there isn't as many Michelin stars as actually just in the middle of nowhere. It seems that food has become a real destination thing nowadays. Um, It's no surprise to me, though. I mean, when I go to great restaurants in London, they are littered with all of the produce from where I'm from. And it's no surprise that really a lot of chefs come up here and, and cook really well because everything's there for you really in nature and you just you just need to to cook it nicely. So, uh, yeah, I'm very pleased. And I think it is also, as you said, that's a snowball effect as well. Once, once you get one great place and you get another great place and then it becomes this sort of destination and uh, definitely feel a lot of our guests are on a, are on a culinary tour of the north for sure.
2: And in 2018, you opened Roots. Tell us about Roots.
0: So Roots, we opened in New York. So that was our second restaurant. Yeah, so we started off as a small plates restaurant, which was uh, really busy. So we went from running the black swan that was a tasty menu and small to doing like 120 people on a Saturday night with a busy bar upstairs. And like, it was wicked fun. But if I'm honest, I was a bit out of my depth with it. We, um, <laughs> we'd bit off a bit more than we could chew, but it was like a really, it was one of them places that was really cool to go as a customer. But as a person running it, it was it was hard work. And uh, when the pandemic hit, we closed and we looked at it and we thought, do you know what? It's going to be difficult to try and run this hustle bustle place when we've got social distancing rules in place, et cetera. So we changed it to, a tasting menu restaurant a bit like the black swan and we just thought like let's just we've got enough dishes in our repertoire enough sort of creativity we want to we want to express ourselves so let's just do another restaurant and and start again so actually after only two years of being open we reopened it as a totally different thing and within six months we won a mission star which was which was fantastic and uh we're definitely much better at operating uh, mission star tasting mini restaurants than we are at Hustle bustle small plates for sure. <laughs> but you live and if, learn, don't you? You've you're
1: I mean that's a clearly a good example of of pivoting under difficult circumstances. You also did that with the uh, the Maiden in oldstead home delivery boxes, but now you've opened a can a canned wine business. Tell us tell us about Banks Brothers Wine.
0: So Banks Brothers Wine, yeah, it's something I really For a long time we've always, my brother is the sommelier in the business and a real expert in wine his passion is sort of buying and importing wine and he literally goes to bed with wine lists from companies and reads through to see if he can find any bargains. He's, he's really, really sad. So it's been a big sort of part <laughs> of our business plan for a long time. And uh, what we've done historically is we'd always imported wines and put no label on them. So we always have like three or four unlabeled bottles on uh, our wine list, which were the real bargain. So like regular customers, would get all oh, have a bottle of unlabeled because they knew that we would have chosen it and it would have been great. And usually they were sort of things from a really respected vineyard, but they had a, a tank of Pinot Noir, which they didn't actually have a use for. And we were like, okay, well, it tastes delicious. We'll take the whole thing, bottle it, we'll take it. And um, when the sort of pandemic hit in South Africa, they brought these awful rules in of almost, they have a lot of alcohol uh, related uh, problems in terms of the illnesses and hospitals in South Africa. So they decided they would just, stop people from drinking as much as possible to try and uh, take down the pressure on the hospitals and one of the silly rules that they made was that they would um, stop their vineyards from um, being able to produce the wine that they just produced and march is harvest time in south africa so all of these vineyards have got full tanks of wine and no route to market So a few months on, and we were talking to people out there, and they're like, this, we're just being, our industry's being destroyed. When you got a year on for the next harvest, they're actually having to pour wine away down the drains in order to relief room for this year's harvest. So it was a real terrible time. So we were like, okay, well, James came to me and said, look, I really want to invest as much as we can in South African wine and just find these, this wine that could be wasted at home and try and help out some people who we've got good relationships with, we've worked for a long time. And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. He was like, but maybe we, we're going to have to, des- if we're going to do this a lot, we're going to have to design a label and actually stop doing unlabeled and get a label. And I thought about it for a bit and I was like, why don't we put it in cans? I just think it'd be cool. And he was like, well, what's your reasoning? And I was like, oh, I had to think of a pitch on the fly. Um, but <laughs> my, main, my main reason, actually, there's lots of great sustainable reasons. Cans are infinitely more recyclable. They weigh a lot less when it comes to shipping as well. But my main reason was actually the portion size. So a can is 250 mils. And uh, I find certainly at home that and we've just got a little girl. So all the time, was pregnant. If I open a bottle of wine at home, she wasn't drinking. I'd go back. If I drink the whole thing, then I feel rubbish the next day. And if I drink half of it, I then go and work service the next four nights in a row. And I come home and it's stale and I pour it down the sink. And I think that's a reality for a lot of people. So the idea of Banks with us was that we would can some really amazing wines. Because a lot of canned wine is sort of a bit fancy free isn't it it's kind of it's to a price point and it's to sort of for drinking not necessarily for matching with food for instance mm-hmm. um so we, we can some seriously good wines and then it would give people opportunity just to try different things uh, and also the kind of wines which are expensive there'd be 30 pound a bottle maybe in, a, in a, a nice wine shop you could just buy a third of a bottle in a can it's less of a an investment and it's uh i think it's uh one of the great things is it encourages people to try things they might not necessarily have tried before but it's so much fun because i just get to literally taste wines and decide which ones we want. it's the easiest part of all the jobs that i do in our business is the bank for us. It's the one that I enjoy the most as well, and and, it, and it's done really well. And I think uh, there's a lot of scope to go further. We'd like to uh, next year. We have some French wines coming, which should be cool. Uh, I'm not sure how the French feel about people putting their wine in cans, but um, I'm sure they're going to have to get over that.
2: <laughs> and Tommy, when you're away from the Black Swan, you're at home. What do you tend to cook for yourself and your family?
0: Really enjoy cooking at home. Actually, so for a lot of years, I really didn't. I think I was just so cooked out, but I find it quite a relaxing thing to do. I think like all people at home, you actually, even though you're a chef, you end up doing the same things over and over. That's what everybody says, isn't it? You kind of end up these sort of stuck on these uh, recipes. Most weeks we have a pretty mean jambalaya, actually. Um, (laughs) Of all things, it's pretty random. I really like doing slow cooks though, like stews. You know, if it was a day off, like you put something in the oven on the morning and then go out all day and come back and rustle something up. That that would be my absolute favourite.
1: And do you have a sweet tooth?
0: Yeah, I have a tooth for everything. To be honest, I'm just greedy. (laughs) I just just really like food. Yeah, I am a huge cheese fan. Absolutely love cheese, but yeah, sweet tooth. Yeah, I think my all-time favourite dessert is like a lemon tart, something like that. Uh, Or one thing we make a lot at home is an apple tart in winter because it's just easy and quick and just seriously delicious. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: And Tommy, as listeners know, we we normally finish with a question about what, what would your desert island meal be?
0: If I was on a desert island, I'd I'd need entertainment as well as food. I love cooking. So I think I'd probably try and trade off against the meal and say, look, come on a desert island. Surely the sea around me is full of amazing fish which I've probably never cooked with before because I'm guessing, I'm hoping on the Desert Island, the waters are a little bit warmer than Scarborough and Whitby, which is our nearest coastline. So I'm thinking there's going to be lots of exotic fish. So instead of that, could I have like a really cool kitchen set up, like this really cool big barbecue, and then I could just cook fish to my heart's content, and that would keep me occupied as well. So rather than a meal, I'm just going to have lots of exotic fish which i don't even know the name of and hopefully it's not poisonous and cook it over open flames and that's going to keep me content on this desert island
1: and to drink alongside
0: uh banks brothers uh <laughs> <laughs> of course um, i could just uh, you know make a little rock pool and just keep my cans cool in there and uh, that would be my perfect match yeah
2: <laughs> well tommy thank you very much for joining table talk
0: thank you for having me
1: thanks for listening to this episode of table talk If you enjoyed it, please do leave us a rating and review. For more recipes and recommendations, sign up to The Spectator's free monthly food and drink email, The Takeaway, written by me, Olivia Potts. Sign up at www.spectator.co.uk
2: forward slash Olivia Potts.